It's getting tougher and tougher to connect with people who want to engage with you online. And if you just pause to think about that, think about the the truth of that scenario. You know, you want to connect with somebody who wants to connect with you. You want to say something that somebody else wants to entertain and wants to give you feedback for. You want to engage with other human beings. And increasingly, barriers are being put in your way to do so, particularly if you happen to be right of center. This is amazing. This is a reversion, a retardation, a de-evolution of what the promise of the Internet has been. And we got an antidote for you here that demonstrates it on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming on com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So, slowly but surely, we've been upping our production game here on the program, trying to uh, introduce more professional elements into our promotions and our social media engagement and what have you. And... I had a little side project last week that I threw together, uh, made a couple of, a couple of ads. You know, one of them was the promo that you might've heard running today for the show. That's kind of like a generic plug-in promo that will, will pop in on, on days where we're not sure what the topic is going to be, particularly over the weekend. Which is most days. Well, that's true, but that's true. But, you know, usually when I'm live and I'm going to be live within 24 hours, I have a decent sense of what the news might be and we'll do we'll do a custom promo. But it's nice to have something to plug in that works, right? I also did a longer form promo for the show that probably isn't going to work for radio because it's too long, but it can work on social media as an ad on, say, Facebook, right? And so I decided to try my hand at Facebook video advertising, and uh, I have a little bit of experience with cutting together videos. Finished a uh, completed product, went through all the trouble of, you know, linking the subtitles to the speech, so even when you see it in your feed and the sound isn't on, you still see what's being said and what have you. Get all the way through that process, submit the ad. And just as a little bit of background, having submitted ads to Facebook before or trying to boost some of our posts on our closing argument with Walter Hudson Facebook page, which you should like, by the way, and and uh, set as being notified when we post stuff. They, they say in the fine print that it can take up to... Uh, 15 minutes, I think it is. They say something like 15 minutes to review an ad. I've had it take 15 hours, 24 hours. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that's the additional scrutiny, the additional dragging of feet probably has to do with the fact that it's conservative talk radio at a conservative organization. Nah, it, it happens everywhere. All right. 
Fair enough. In this case, the response came immediately, probably because it was produced by a bot. It wasn't even a human being looking at it, just an algorithm. And the response was, your ad's been rejected because it contains political content. Now, just that right there is fascinating to me, political content. Because what is political content, right? right? Perhaps a better question is, what isn't political content? Right, like what idea is somebody putting out there that doesn't have political implications at some level? I don't know what their standard is, but apparently I crossed the threshold. Well, it's because you're paying for it. <laughs> okay, but, I mean I don't agree with it, but it's how did, so paying for it. So I'm certainly there are ads that people pay for that is not flagged as political content. Correct. So how are they deciding what's political and what isn't based on who you target and some keywords in the ad um and it's it was brought on by the russian facebook ads during the election last year right and so now they need to verify your identity right which is what i'm getting to here so they have this new process in play where in order to get your your political content ads on facebook actually published and sent out even though you're paying for them you still have to jump through this hoop there's a four-step process, and I'm remembering from memory here, so hopefully I'll get it accurately. The first thing you have to do is a two-step verification or a two-factor verification where they send a text message to your phone or yeah, you go through an authentication app on your phone. So either way, you got to have a cell phone. The second thing is you have to submit your residential address, and then they send a physical letter to your house, which could take up to seven days to arrive with another verification code on it that you then have to go back into the website and enter. So that's two verification codes. Then the third step is you need to submit photographs front and back of either your passport and your driver's license. All of that has to match up. And then the last thing is they want the last four digits of your social security number. Now this is like, this is like security clearance level verification of who you are in order to have the privilege of saying things, literally saying things to other people who are under no obligation whatsoever to entertain what you're saying. Like if somebody sees the ad, they can whiz right past it. Most people will. That's just the fact of advertisement. They can engage with it. They can watch it. They can ignore it. They can block it. Like they can do as they will. Like I'm not imposing myself on anybody. And the the notion that there's some... My, it's so important. And this is the question that I need to answer. Why is it so important to know who's behind a Facebook post? Why is it so important to have that Scooby-Doo moment of ripping the mask off and being like, aha, it was Mr. Biggins who was really behind the, the, the Russian ad. I don't understand the importance of this. What, how is this edifying anybody or educating anybody or benefiting our discourse to reveal the person behind the speech? Why don't we just evaluate the speech on its merits? Why are we elevating ad hominem to something of value where the person who's making the argument is somehow relevant to whether or not the argument is accurate? This is absurd. But the, the, the other thing that strikes me as more absurd is that I got to go through all this in order to make an ad on Facebook. Meanwhile, come August in the primary election, Come November in the general, if I want to vote and I'm not registered in my district, in my precinct, 
All I've got to do is find somebody who's willing to vouch for me. And vouching is quite literally some dude who lives in the precinct saying, yeah, I know him. Sure, he lives here. Well, isn't that just reinforcing our view on property rights and that the restrictions that we place on our use of private property are more effective than than any law that the government applies? You're saying in reference to what Facebook's doing to protect or to exercise their property rights? Just to to verify who you are in the public realm. I'm not following. Because Facebook is doing it be, after because of the 2016 election. Right. And, I mean, even radio and TV ad, ad political advertising now, like, you're required to say this ad was paid for by this Correct. person. Correct. Right. Yeah. So Facebook is just applying the same standard. And... Um, and now that information, how much you spend and what the, and the posts that you made will be public record, presumably, or somebody can ask for it and well, it'll certainly Facebook, be a Facebook will record. It. I don't know yes. if it's public record. Well, I think Facebook will provide it if you ask sure. for it is the, is the deal. Um, and it is secure in that you know who it is and who's making the purchase, who's supporting that speech. And I, I agree with you that you know you, we should just be able to evaluate on the face of it, but it is important to know who is paying for why paying for ads, just as we see who's donating to politicians. And yeah, the, here's here's and I disagree with that. I have I have a huge problem with campaign finance restrictions of any kind. I don't like the you know this message has been approved by. I don't like having to to disclose donors. There's a reason why, listen, if you want to get rid of anonymity in politics, then let's get rid of the secret ballot. Let's let's ha- in, in, insist that everybody post who they voted for, right? Like, in, if you want to vote, you're going to have to tell us how you did it. Now, there's a reason why we don't have that, right? The reason why we have anonymity in we the ballot box. What's that? We have that now in Minnesota. How so? Your vote in the ballot that you pick in the primary is public record. Well, whether it's Republican or Democrat, but that's no different than registering Republican or Democrat. Uh, debatable. How? Because people like because people like Richard Painter aren't being. I mean, well, maybe he he is, but like it's not as big of a deal that he was once a Republican just because he was a registered Republican and worked with Republicans. Like people are p- publications like the City Pages are going to sh- start shaming people for choosing a Republican ballot. Oh, I see what you're saying. And well, that, it can I mean, be used look, against you. It that that's that makes it effectively. You're right. That is kind of an in round around the the anonymity of not having to register as either Republican or Democrat. I'm not sure if the lack of party registration in this state is justified or motivated by a desire for anonymity. But regardless, being affiliated with one party or the other, even through the selection of a ballot in the primary, is different than disclosing precisely who you voted for. You know, actually attaching your name to a particular ballot and the, the exact votes that were taken on that ballot. Regardless, the point being, the reason why we have anonymity when we go into the ballot box is specifically so that people's desire to vote won't be chilled by the potential consequences, the harassment, the shaming, the pushback that they'll get from society, from whoever, from the majority, from oppressors, for voting the way that they do. People ought to be able to cast their vote 
without it being public knowledge as to who they voted for. Now, if we're going to treat, if we're going to have that protection for the ballot that you cast, why would we not have the same protection for speech itself? What is it about saying something? And look, if you're going to if you're going to follow this premise that we, it's so important that we know who's saying what, how far do you take that? Like, where is that line, that magic line where the speech becomes political enough that we have to know who you are? Right. And and what protections are there for a minority for whom it is dangerous to say a particular thing? For whom it is dangerous to lodge a complaint. You know, there's a, a piece we're going to get into here eventually from the, the Star Tribune. They've done this expose about women who have been sexually assaulted and the fact that their cases have been mishandled, grossly mishandled by law enforcement. Now, they have at the, the bullhorn of the Star Tribune working for them and they've come together in order to leverage their numbers in order to get their case across, but by themselves, without the ability to 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 have a voice what recourse do they have you're going to tell them that if they if they're going to make a complaint against the way the law enforcement has been tre- treating them that they have to put their name on it they can't be anonymous they have to subject themselves to whatever sort of pushback they may incur as a result this is the the number one check on the power of the political majority to oppress a political minority is ensuring that people can speak and act anonymously. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, So in order to put out an ad on Facebook that has what they consider to be political content, you have to go through this ID verification process that is, in my view, quite excessive in order to demonstrate that you actually are who you say you are so that they could then attach your ID to whatever message it is that you're putting out there. Now, the question that I have is, why is this important? Why do we need to know? <laughs> why do we need to know who's behind a Facebook post? Why is that so incredibly urgent? And worthy of such an intrusive process of ID verification, as opposed to, say, for instance, casting a ballot that actually has an effect on political outcomes and who gets to make public policy in the state, in the country. You know, if you're going to have stringent requirements that a person prove that they are who they say they are, you would think that if you're actually concerned about the integrity of the election, that you would want to direct your focus on binding ballots rather than Facebook posts. But the opposite is true. The inverse is that is of that is true. Certainly when you're dealing with, you know, the political left who is dominant over there in the leadership at Facebook. Closing argument, my name's Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM eleven thirty, one oh three five FM, six five one nine eight nine five eight five five, the number to join us. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter, what I was going to say, you kind of covered, but I had an idea of why this is happening. Because at the whole, the left are more, more okay with doing, like, holding uh, people accountable by, by doing boycotts and such, like right. all the stuff that they did right. do against Rush and right. Sean Hannity and stuff. Yeah. And so, so they try to control the narrative of 
of discussion in every Correct. sphere they can. Correct. And and so so what they're trying to do is be able to ostracize people who say something other than what they think is okay. Right. And and that's what it comes down to. And the truth of the matter is they want everybody and anybody, even some people don't that don't exist to vote, as long as they vote for them. Right. And and if they say anything bad about anything, you know, like when they were saying bad about the Black Panthers, what they did in, in Philadelphia and stuff mm-hmm. like that, then you get ostracized because, well, that can't happen. We can't prove that, even though it can be proved. Right. Appreciate the call, Barry, and that's that's exactly the direction that uh, I'm taking this analysis, is that the, what this reveals in my mind is the complete disingenuousness and hypocrisy of the left when it comes to the topic of election integrity, and in particular as manifest in the ongoing Russia narrative. Because all we've heard since even before Donald Trump took office, you know, even in between the transition period when he was president-elect and when he was inaugurated, all we've heard for the two years since is how we have to protect our democracy from Russia. We have to protect our electoral process from the Russians. And even now, even in the midst of the latest controversy out of Helsinki, where President Trump took the side of Vladimir Putin over our own intelligence services, which, you know, as I said at the time, I don't agree with. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think that was a smart play on Trump's part. But even so, the 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 hyperbole the kabuki theater surrounding that and surrounding the the threat of russia's influence on our elections at the end of the day what do we mean by influence this is a question that nobody seems to ask what do we mean by influence because it seems to me no evidence whatsoever has been presented to suggest that a single vote was changed by the russians in other words, that the Russians took action which actually flipped a ballot from Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump, right? Like, the, the, the claim seems to be that these Facebook ads or whatever other action that Russian hackers took, you know, get, getting information out there about what Hillary Clinton had done to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, which, you know, <laughs> wouldn't have been damaging had Hillary actually been an honest human being that conducted herself above board. So I don't know how that's the Russians' fault that she did something wrong and got caught. But regardless, the influence that they exert at its worst, at its absolute worst, is speech. It's saying something. It's posting something on Facebook. It's tweeting something out. Right. And we've seen examples of these Facebook posts. We've seen examples of things that have been verified as coming from Russian sources. They tend to be awfully ridiculous. I can't imagine that anybody's minds have actually been changed by the posts that Russia has put out. But even if they have, so what? So what? Since when do we have to protect people from other people from speech from being exposed to speech and that's what this is that's what that's the impetus underlying all of this that some speech should not be allowed to take place that people need to be their their precious ears need and eyes need to be protected from being exposed to certain speech not necessarily because of who it comes from but because of what it says, what it is. Mm-mm, that's not what's going on, though. How is that not what's going because, on? Because they are, they are protecting us from...
who it's from, but not what it says. They're making sure that who says it is transparent and that it comes from American actors so, with American money. So you, you can be- still be ridiculous and say something stupid. So you think that if all these Russian ads were pro-Hillary and anti-Trump, there'd be the same level of fervor? Uh, I don't know. I Maybe. Um, I think that... I, I don't think that's a likely scenario worth debating because it wasn't going to happen. And um, I think that... Well, I mean, it, there probably would have been a fervor, and Mark Zuckerberg still would have been called before Congress just because the Republicans have a majority. And this is Zuckerberg's move to... Originally, we thought he was going to want to be regulated by the government to gain regulatory capture of the social media market. But that isn't what happened. Instead, he took action on his own so that he wouldn't be regulated. In the end, it resulted in less government regulation and more election transparency, both of which are good for the social media environment and the consumer. But you and I are operating under two different definitions of election transparency. To, to my mind, there there is no right to know who says something, number one. Sure, and, there and isn't. Num- but- and number two, it doesn't matter whether this... The, how We can't cut ourselves off. I mean, we talk about free trade, right? The idea that we're going to somehow insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from foreign thoughts is patently ridiculous. Other countries have opinions. People who live elsewhere in the world have opinions, and they're all on the Internet. The idea that we have to itemize everyone and number everybody and track everything that everybody says in order to make sure that my thoughts, my precious thoughts aren't being influenced by a Russian or a chi- or somebody from China or whatever the case may be. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a level of paranoia that's informed by a, a lack of faith in the 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 individual human being and the market as a whole to make good decisions based upon the the information that's available to them. The idea that by somehow limiting access to information, we're going to make the world a better place. We're not limiting access to information. Sure you are. Sure you... Okay. So there's information that I put together last week that's currently not distributed because I have to verify my ID. That's a limitation on information how many people are not going to engage how many people are not going to go through who don't bother to go through the process even right now this is the worst sin of campaign finance reform the worst sin is it erects a barrier to access for people who don't want to bother they don't want to go through the trouble of forming a pack or having to to jump through hoops or expose themselves to the potential litigation or prosecution resulting from from straying over an arbitrary line that's been written by the state. That's a limitation on speech. And the, it's just like the, the consequences in the economy that we don't see as a result of regulation. The same is true in the marketplace of ideas. But this wasn't written by the state. And it, it's, not, like, it's not the same because it's Facebook making a decision, a decision based on its market. I agree with you that campaign Under finance pressure, is dumb. You, you, you said yourself. He, he was pulled before Congress under pressure, under threat. The gun is there, and they might not be pointing at his head, but they got their hand on it in the holster saying, hmm, are you going to do something about this Russian influence in the election? If you think he's making these decisions without any regard for what the government might do to him, I, I just fundamentally disagree with that. We'll talk with uh, you folks, Mike and Farmington, and the rest of you when we return, 651-989-5855. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join the conversation, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. We've been talking about Facebook and political content ads on Facebook and the requirement that they now have in the wake of the Russia hysteria and all this sudden concern about foreign influence, which, you know, wasn't there during the Obama administration, strangely, when Hillary Clinton and her husband had the Clinton Foundation and were taking literal bribes from foreign actors all around the globe as a powerful member of an active administration. That wasn't a problem then, but now we're suddenly so concerned about foreign influence. And by foreign influence, I mean a Russian says something and you hear it. A Russian tweets something and you see it. A Russian puts up a Facebook post and it, and it assaults your eyes and somehow takes over your brain and makes you think differently than you did before. That's what we mean by foreign influence. And in order to protect ourselves from that, we now all have to go through, if we want to engage on Facebook through through paid advertising that has what they deem to be political content in it, we now have to go through this invasive ID verification process, and we've been talking about that here tonight. Let's go to your calls. Mike in Farmington, welcome to the program. Hey, good evening, Walter. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yep. I can hear the passion in your voice. And I, I've got a few. I got a few questions. One is, do you think maybe the Democrats might care more about our borders if, let's say, like Russian Russia was on our border? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? That, that look, you hit on something that's actually quite a profound point. They're so con- supposedly so concerned about foreign influence. Yet they effectively want open borders, which means an influx of foreigners to the country who they in turn want to see granted citizenship and granted the ability to vote. Now, I I got news for you. I'm confident making this assertion. Not a single Russian citizen voted in the 2016 election. No ballot was cast by a Russian who came here illegally. Right. Like maybe it's possible, but it certainly wasn't endemic. Compare that against the active, articulated desire to see untold millions of people from south of the border, whether they be from Mexico or Central America, to come here, be granted citizenship, be given the right to vote, and to actually influence our political system. They don't care about foreign influence at all. At all. It's a total scam. I I wouldn't pretend to speak for the uh, closing argument, brethren, that looks at your program regularly, but I think most of us through the falsity of this, the the party of virtue, as the Democrats like to portray themselves, they're, they're not interested in that, and they're simply they're just interested in in winning and putting forward right. their political agenda. So right. my question then becomes: when you cannot play by the same set of rules anymore with another group of people, mm-hmm. and you can't. You, you can try to make the argument. Um, you can try to defeat them. It was interesting watching Shapiro engage Bill Maher. I thought that was yeah. very interesting. But what are you left with then, really, to try to engage these people, these tyrants, if you will? Well, in- increasingly, I have difficulty answering that question. And, you know, we had on last Thursday, we had an interesting show 
where I talked about the contrast between what I regard to be a culture of conquest versus versus a culture of consent. And my one of my thesis statements was that the culture of conquest, this desire to get one over on the other guy just for the sake of conquering him, is something that has crept into the right and crept into the Republican Party and was was kind of a, a characteristic of Donald Trump's campaign. And it's something that I've bemoaned and that I don't like. And a, a lot of the feedback that I got from the callers was, well, that that these are the times we're living in. This is what we need right now because of how horrible the left is. And something occurred to me over the weekend thinking about that. So let me ask this. Yeah. I mean, maybe we're going at this the wrong way because when I was listening to your uh, your monologue, as it were, and you're discussing this issue, it's almost as if you're operating on the premise that they're going to be principled and have values when, in fact, in my view, that's not the case. They are corrupt. They only see their own agenda, and I guess that has to be brought to light, that these people are going to hit below the belt, and they're going to do anything they can to win. Yeah, well, and that's um, I'm totally fine with that being the takeaway of of this anecdote and this observation. I appreciate your call, Mike. Let's go to Nate in Invergrove Heights. Welcome to the program. Hey. How's it going? Good. About that, I'm walking through the door. <laughs> What's on your um, mind? I was going to talk about the Facebook stuff. Sure. Um, so my, my issue is, like right now, everything is still in the realm of free marketness. And yes, Facebook is personally making the decision that if you want to engage in their marketplace, you have to share your information. Mm -hmm. And yes, you said that, you know, there's no implicit right that we need to know who's saying whatever. Right. But there's no implicit right to engage in Facebook either. That's correct. That's correct. correct. Just stop out. That's absolutely correct. I haven't used Facebook in years because I just couldn't care less. Here's here's why I'm making an issue out of it anyway, because I absolutely agree with you. And under no circumstance would I support or advocate for the state intervening in Facebook's policies and telling them, no, you can't have this. No, you won't verify people's ID however you want to. Facebook can put up any kind of requirement they want. And as a free actor in the market, engaging with other people in the market, they get to do that. I don't contest that at all. The reason why I think this is a big deal is two reasons. One, there is a connection between the culture and our politics. And what Facebook is doing is driven in no small part by the culture, a culture that that has taken for granted this notion that we need you know, what has, in my view, fraudulently or fallaciously been called transparency. We need to know who's behind the speech we're encountering. And, and also that there's F- Facebook exists at a level because of how big they are and because of the the cronyism that is implicit in our system as it currently stands under the status quo, Facebook is not entirely a private actor in the same way that you and I are private actors or in the same way that a small or medium business is a private actor because they're operating at such a high level that they have influence over public policy and they're a huge target for the implementation of public policy, and that makes them a political actor as much as they are a cultural actor or a market actor. Right, but I guess my my issue with that is whose fault is that, and I would put that back on everyone else participating in it, and it's not, yeah. No, I know what you're saying. You're saying we need to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm all for it. I'm all for it. The and part of the reason why, and again, I think part of the reason why we're not seeing more competition against the likes of Facebook, more effective competition against the likes of Facebook, is because they've gotten so big that they they're able to capture the the regulatory mechanisms. And keep, I mean, Facebook is one of the people who's big into net neutrality, and all net neutrality is is it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's 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 regulation with the design to cement the status quo and keep competitors, especially small competitors, out of the market. So they're exactly. for that. Google's for that. Apple's for that. You know, and so that the the problem is is that to a, to an extent, consumers are locked into a calcified process. That is the result of regulatory capture. I appreciate your thoughts, uh, Nate, yeah. and you, you bring up good points. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So I, I tend to be, I don't know, I was going to say pessimistic. I don't know if that's true. I tend to be realistic. I view it as realism. Yeah. You know? But uh, as the older I get, the more appreciation I have for trying to find the silver lining, for trying to see the the good in whatever it is that you find yourself facing on a given day. You know, I think that's important because I think it goes to that culture of gratitude that we talk about here on the show. You know, when you have an orientation toward, when you have an optimistic orientation toward the future, and you have a, a general sense of gratitude. You're grateful for the the privileges that you enjoy and the life experiences that you get to have and the provision that's been uh, given to you by God and by those who choose to engage with you uh, in relationship. You set yourself up to enjoy your life more. It really is selfish, ironically. <laughs> it really is a self-interested pursuit trying to be optimistic and joyful and hopeful. And so I, I try to, you know, increasingly foster that characteristic in myself. I did not have a good day today, though. I had a pretty bad day today. I, I went on my day job and things started off okay, but then my work vehicle broke down. And that, you know, that defined the entire day. And I ended up spending, you know, the the vast majority of what would have been time earning money dealing with a vehicle that would not function and trying to get it taken care of and trying to get my myself back to my home and pick up the pieces of my day. But in retrospect, and even while I was in the midst of it, I was struck by how amazingly convenient being inconvenienced is in our modern day. Because, you know, the, my situation was... I live on the outskirts of town, you know, far out, just past what's considered to be the metro area on the west side of town. And I broke down right smack in the middle of the metro, not too far from where this studio is, in fact. And I was able to, you know, within the course of minutes, find the best option to get a tow, the best option to get my vehicle looked at. I was able to secure a tow truck to come and get me to where I needed to go, get me to the shop. Once I was at the shop, I was able to take care of business there within minutes, and then I got an Uber to take me home. Now, all of that was painless. It all happened right there on my phone. I had my phone with me, of course, and it, all the, those services were available to me to handle that emergency, to handle that unexpected 
uh, hardship that emerged in life. Ten years ago, this day, this tough day, this bad day would have been much harder than it was today because of technology, because of innovation, because of advancements that came into being for one reason and one reason only. The profit motive, the desire to make money. Because people at various levels wanted to make something better and faster and more convenient in order to attract customers, in order to raise profits, in order to see their stock prices go up, we got the the advent of a series of technological advances that manifest in this thing that you carry around in your hand or in your pocket from which you can order literally anything, almost, (laughs) within the realms of reason. I mean, increasingly, it is getting to be just about anything you could order and have have it serviced the same day. And that is truly amazing. And the reason we have this is because of this thing called capitalism. And, you know, I want to start off just by defining capitalism because I think part of the problem, part of the reason why we have this ridiculous contest in the culture between capitalism and socialism is because people don't know what they're talking about when they use the word capitalism. They just don't know what they're talking about. Capitalism is really easy. It's a really simple concept to understand. It's just freedom. That's all it is. It's just liberty. It's just the ability to do what you want. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's, it's the economic manifestation. It's what comes. The, it's the economic consequence of liberty. When you're free to act, capitalism is what happens in that space. Conversely, socialism is what happens economically in a space where you're subjugated, where you don't have rights, where you're controlled by the state. And when you think of it in those terms, there's really no contest between the two. Capitalism should always prevail, and socialism should be rejected in all its forms all the time, every time. But obviously, there are a lot of folks in our society, in our culture, and in our politics who don't agree with that. From Vox. We think of capitalism as being locked in an ideological battle with socialism, but we never really saw that capitalism might be defeated by its own child, technology. This is how Eric Weinstein, a mathematician and a managing director of Peter Thiel's investment firm, Thiel Capital, began a recent video for BigThink.com. In it, he argues that technology has so transformed our world that we may need a hybrid model in the future, which is paradoxically more capitalistic than our capitalism today, and perhaps even more socialistic than our communism of yesteryear. Now, if you think that statement, you know, more capitalistic than our capitalism today, and perhaps even more socialistic than our communism of yesteryear, if you think that's gobbledygook nonsense, you are correct. I mean, this is like saying we need we need more matter and more antimatter. We need more of these things. That's advocating for precisely nothing. And, and, only, and only one thing can result from the interaction of these two things, and that's destruction. They, they cannot survive in the same space. Continuing at Vox. Another way uh, of saying that is that socialist principles might be the only thing that can save capitalism. Weinstein's thinking reflects a growing awareness in Silicon Valley of the challenges faced by capitalist society. Technology will continue to upend careers, Workers across fields will be increasingly displaced, and it's likely that many jobs lost will not be replaced. Now, this is utter and complete nonsense. 
this is the hubris of, you know, being in, you're in a fog, right? And you see the 10 yards of road ahead of you. And your prediction is in 10 yards, we're going to fall off a cliff. In 10 yards, the world ends. In 10 yards, there's no, nothing else is going to come next. Remember how the movie The Mist ended? <laughs> Actually, I never saw The Mist. How did it end? <laughs> <laughs> like you're describing. Okay. Well, that's not how it's going to go. The, the, this is the the same type of reasoning that informed predictions of doom and gloom when it came to like overpopulation and resource depletion in the 60s and the 70s. And here we are in 2018 and we're all alive and there's more of us and we have more resources than we've ever had before. That's because you, you cannot account for what free thinking, self-interested human beings are going to do when circumstances change. You know, if we had this type of thinking that's presented here at Vox back before the advent of sewage and running water, we'd protect jobs, but those jobs would be shoveling crap, hauling water, shady, filthy water from the nearest river, and pushing corpse carts down the road while chanting, bring out your dead. Very valuable professions that no longer exist because we indulged the advent of new technologies. I think that's a good thing. And I think those types of advancements can continue going into the future. And we don't know what it'll look like. We can't see through the fog. But I, I can guarantee you, there's a road there. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. In this piece at Vox, which is actually an interview between the author, Sean Illing, and this Eric Weinstein, who he quotes, who again, is, he's a mathematician and a managing editor of, or managing director, I should say, of the investment firm Feel Capital. And he did a video for Big Think, in which he argued that we need to have more capitalism and more socialism in the future. We need to have a hybrid of the two moving forward. And the argument that they raise here is that this is because of technology, because of the fact that, you know, you have robots taking over automation, uh, you know, manufacturing work, computers are taking over everything. Human beings are no longer going to be necessary in order to engage in a lot of the repetitive labor that makes up a big portion of the blue collar workforce. And as a result, something simply must be done because these jobs are not going to be replaced and so we need to have something like a universal basic income is the argument that they're raising, which, you know, we did the math on this last week, I believe it was. I don't know how you make a universal basic income work, because even if you were to tax 40% of the GDP of the United States, you still wouldn't have enough money to substantially buoy every man, woman and child in the country. And also, if you're going to tax that much out of the economy, you're, you, you can't do that without having an effect upon how productive the economy is going forward, which means that you're going to have less money to redistribute, which is that's what socialism does. You know, look at Venezuela. So it doesn't work, number one, which is kind of a big deal. So the notion that we're even talking about it is pretty absurd but then on top of it the idea that we need to have a universal basic income in order to replace these these jobs that are going to be lost to advancements in technology you know it 
it ignores a couple of things. One, the fact that, you know, as we articulated last hour, there's this sort of fog of war, or in this case, you could say fog of technology or fog of culture past which we cannot see. You know, you can't predict how people are going to react, how technology is going to develop, how the culture is going to move in response to technological developments. You know, who could have predicted the, the iPhone before the iPhone came out? Who could have predicted the Internet before the Internet happened? You know, who could have predicted Uber before Uber emerged on the scene? You don't know what's going to emerge to solve tomorrow's problems. And the idea that everything's just going to be the way it is now, only with less jobs, is pretty absurd. It's literally never happened, and there's no reason to assume that it will. And it's, it's, it's a, a large degree of hubris to assume that human beings are going to just stop being productive. That they're going to be like, well, I guess I'm not needed in order to screw in that widget anymore, so I guess I'm just going to sit here like a bump on a log and not put any effort into ensuring that I'm valuable to the market as it exists today. And the other aspect of this that they go through in this piece over at Vox is the notion, you know, they, kind of, they never overtly say it, but they kind of paint this picture that a, a human being ought to have a reasonable expectation that they develop a certain set of skills and then are able to make a solid living with those same set of skills doing the same thing in the same job their entire life until they retire. And they cite the fact that this is something, you know, that people were doing in past generations, and therefore it's something that ought to continue going forward. Now, you know, I would argue, number one, that it was only ever a certain segment of the population that was able to lock themselves into one skill set and only focus on that skill set for their entire careers. And secondly, the further back you go, the 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 more people were locked into certain professions because they didn't have any other options, right? Like people were in agriculture. The, the vast majority of people farmed because they had to in order to eat, right? Like The idea that that was a good thing, well, at least you know what you're going to be doing with your life. You're going to be getting up at 5 in the morning and going out to the fields and working all day and having a couple of big meals, and then when the sun goes down, you get to go to sleep. That's your whole life. Very predictable. You'll, you'll always have you always have a job. You'll always have something to do, but you don't have any options open to you. Technological developments, economic development creates options for people. When you don't have to worry about subsisting off the land, you can turn your time and effort to other more enriching activities. And th th that principle, that concept applies to whatever jobs are going to be, quote, lost, unquote, as a result of emergent technology. People will find other things to do. They will find other ways to spend their time. And, you know, these, these guys, Elling and Weinstein over at Vox, they acknowledge that to an extent. And what they say is, well, you know, people, people will start to write screenplays or people will start to, you know, paint or whatever the case may be. But we can't guarantee that the things that they produce are actually going to command an economic value large enough to sustain their needs. Therefore, we need to have a universal basic income in order to supplement them. Well, <laughs> um, no, 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 we don't. No. The, the, 
first of all, the idea that we're all going to become artists and screenwriters is pretty terrifying to me. That that's like the only thing that people are going to be engaged in is everybody's going to start a band or something is going to be the new economy. I don't think that's what's going to happen, number one. But number two, if the thing being produced, whatever the alternative career pursuit is, if the thing you're pursuing doesn't command value in the market, it's because it's not valuable. It's not valuable. And the only way that you can, the, the idea that we're going to pay somebody money for producing something that doesn't have value is patently absurd. It's inherently destructive. The the only reason why something has value in the first place or the, the, the means by which we know that something has value is because somebody's willing to pay for it. And if what you're telling me is that people aren't willing to pay for it, then it doesn't have value. So why would we give somebody money for something that doesn't have value? The, the, that's the root. That's the essence of what socialism is. It's economically destructive. It's taking money, it's taking a, a currency which is representative of actual value and throwing it down a black hole of no value whatsoever. And the idea that we need a hybrid between the recognition of actual value and the destruction of that value is pretty absurd. But of course, that's the left incarnate. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From National Review, written by Jim Garrity, he writes, Back in March, I wrote about Maryland Democrats talking up a single-payer system for health insurance and how they were refusing to look too closely at how to pay for the plan, which would eliminate all out-of-pocket expenses for patients. They dismissed Vermont's experience from a few years earlier when a group of well-meaning, true-believing progressive Democrats tried to put together a plan and reluctantly abandoned it when they realized that paying for it would require roughly doubling the entire state tax revenue. Oh, and the governor's office calculated that the projected savings on health care costs added up to 1.6% over five years. This morning, the largest newspaper in the state, the Baltimore Sun, reports that Maryland's Department of Legislative Services calculated that the state would have to levy a 10% payroll tax against every business and charge a $2,800 fee for every man, woman, and child in the state to raise the needed $24 billion a year. So you're looking at over $10,000 for a family of four that you would have to, to kick in in order to get you free health care, right? Kevin Harris, a spokesman for Democratic gubernatorial candidate Ben Jealous, says that it's premature to talk about what kind of taxes or fees would be raised to pay for the plan, which raises the question, when would be a good time? This is pretty much what happened in Vermont. Democrats made the bold promises to voters that they would never have to worry about paying for health care ever again, promised to provide details later, one office, form their commissions and study groups, and then when they actually had to translate their idea into a detailed plan, found themselves stunned by the costs and the tax increases that would be necessary to pay for it all. Maryland state government currently spends about $44 billion per year, so they would have to increase the state's spending by 54% to enact Jealous's plan. Of course, some experts, such as those at the Maryland State Medical Society, think enacting the plan would cost even more, and they're likely right. When has, when has a government projected of what something is going to cost ever been correct.
it, it is amazing, isn't it, how socialists, let's not even call them Democrats, let's not even call them liberals, how socialists can look at real-world implementations of the very ideas that they're advocating for and just ignore the results. I, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's stunning. You know, because, I mean, it is and it isn't. It's stunning in the sense that how, how can you be willfully stupid? But it's not stunning in the sense that it's consistent with their worldview. It's a natural byproduct of how they approach the task of living. It comes out of this culture of conquest. The, the truth, and this was a point that I was orbiting around last week and never quite got to when we were talking about the difference between the culture of conquest and the culture of consent. Truth is a value only in the condition of liberty. That's why nobody values it today. That's why everybody's a liar right now, because we don't have enough liberty. We're not free enough. In a condition of liberty, the only way that you can obtain and keep values is by being productive and producing things of value to other people, which means that they have to recognize the value in it, right? You present it, they recognize it, you engage in trade. In that context, truth becomes an inherent value. You have to know what's true. You have Weights and measures have to be accurate, right? Prices have to be accurate. Claims of what you're getting from a product and service have to be accurate. Your reputation depends on it. Your ability to make money depends on it. In that culture, truth becomes a value. But in the one we have right now, where truth is relative and you know we we're we're fighting over the club of the state to knock the other guy over the head with and take his stuff and redistribute it to our favored constituencies in that context truth doesn't matter all that matters is winning let's talk to david in woodbury welcome to the program good evening, evening. i don't mean to sound kind of absurd but you know when i think about all the these brave new world mm-hmm. i'm thinking i'm thinking to myself Maybe that's what some of these socialist candidates, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic either, maybe that's what they really should start to propose. I mean, it means that you don't really raise any children. They implement genetic engineering. Everybody has a function. Um, some are more difficult, some are simpler. But, you know, you've got a drug called Soma to help everybody cope with when they're not right. happy. But otherwise... You know, people are fed. They've got a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously a godless society and stuff like that. But the point is, you live for so long, and in that time period, you know, it's genet- genetic stuff with the manipulation and proof. You live to be 80 or 90 years old, and then you die. But during that period of time, your health is very good. And you create a stable, consumer-based culture. But it's socialist in the sense that everybody shares equally with with things. I mean, I get shrimp, you get shrimp. You know, we get steak, you get steak, type of thing. But everybody's happy. Except and, they're not. <laughs> but, well, they're, they're happy, but they don't realize what a prison they're in. You know, so it's... But, I mean, again, the question is, do, do these people really understand all, what the ultimate end of what they're proposing is? And I, I, th- I, I think on some level they do. I think on some level they do. And I think they're, I appreciate the call, David. We do have to go to a break. I think what motivates them is in the same category is as what motivates your 
friendly neighborhood busybody. Your friendly neighborhood busybody, the little old lady or the man out on his porch with his binoculars who watches what everybody's doing and has an opinion on all the things that are going on on the block. And if you, if you fall into the black hole, if you cross the event horizon of actually engaging him for any length of time, you're stuck in orbit. You're sucked into having to listen to his prescription or her prescription of you know how things ought to be. That impulse of the world would be a better place if I was just king of it all is what motivates them. And ultimately, that's what it's about. It's about being in charge. It's about being in control. Not necessarily because it's legitimately going to make things better, but just for the satisfaction of being able to impose your will on other human beings. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, start to being around here even though you know it's probably my number one go-to source for show prep material it is the local paper after all or one of the two local papers we should probably get more pioneer press mixed in there just for diversity's sake for the sake of diversity of sources but star tribune is the place i tend to go and i pick on them quite a bit with cause with merit you know some of their i was listening to the morning show one of these days last week, and they were talking about how the the difference in treatment, in headline treatment, between the story that we never talked about here on the program uh, about Jason Lewis, who was coming under fire for things he had said on the radio in years past, which, you know, without getting into the actual substance of it, because I'm going to get myself in trouble if I talk about the substance of the things that he was saying. (laughs) But regardless... The, the way that the Star Tribune treated that, it was like Congressman Jason Lewis under fire for comments made against women and, you know, t- 20-whenever it happened. Compared to how they reported on the, the uh, Rick Nolan or Representative Nolan situation where he's uh, on the ticket for a gubernatorial campaign on the Democrats and it came to light that he mishandled, to say the least, a sexual harassment situation with one of his staff in his campaign uh, and and also in his congressional office. The way that was reported, initially the headline was, Rick Nolan faces questions due to staffing issue. You know, so like extraordinarily innocuous to where if you were just, if you were rolling past it in your news feed, you wouldn't even stop. It's the Omlin reporting rule. Yeah. Go ahead and re- re- uh, refresh us. The Omland reporting rule is that the co- the conservative opinion or viewpoint will always be portrayed as wrong before we actually find out what the conservative says. Right, right, right. Absolutely correct. So, you know, we're pretty rough on the Star Tribune around here. And it, like I say, not always without cause. That said, they do do good work overall. And they, they do present us with information that we need to be presented with. And a great example of that came over the weekend with a special report, the first in what is to be a series called Denied Justice. And we'll see what direction this series goes. But this first piece was quite excellent on sexual assault. The The title of it was When Rape is Reported and Nothing Happens. And, well, we'll, we'll get. I'll read a little bit of it here for you, and then we'll get into analyzing it. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 
103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brooke Morath barely saw the man who attacked her. He lunged from the dark early one morning in Minneapolis, blinding her with pepper spray as she scraped snow off her car. Then he tackled her face down onto the frozen ground and raped her. Bleeding, her eyes burning, Morath staggered to a friend's house and banged on a window for help, pleading for someone to call 911. Over the next few hours, the University of Minnesota pre-med student did everything she could to help investigators. She went to the hospital for a sexual assault exam. To preserve possible evidence, she didn't shower or wash her clothing. When police officers arrived, she answered their questions calmly. An investigator assured Morath that her case was a top priority. Within days, however, she began to have doubts. She discovered that the police crime alert for her rape listed an inaccurate address and that officers had missed three nearby businesses while canvassing the neighborhood for surveillance video. Eventually, she said, police stopped returning her calls. That was two years ago. Today, Morath has lost hope that police will ever find the man who raped her, and she worries that he is still preying on other women. It's a terrifying, humiliating, and defeating feeling, she said. It shouldn't be this hard for a victim. It often is. Each year in Minnesota, more than 2,000 women report being raped or sexually assaulted. Hundreds of them discover a crushing fact. They stand little chance of getting justice. A Star Tribune review of more than 1,000 sexual assault cases filed around the state in a recent two-year period reveals chronic errors and investigative failings by Minnesota's largest law enforcement agencies, including those in Minneapolis and St. Paul. In almost a quarter of the cases, records show, police never assigned an investigator. In about one-third of them, the investigator never interviewed the victim. In half the cases, police failed to interview potential witnesses. Most of the cases, about 75%, including violent rapes by strangers, were never forwarded to prosecutors for criminal charges. Overall, fewer than 1 in 10 reported sexual assaults produced a conviction record show. Victims see it as a stark betrayal. And you know, this is a rather lengthy expose over at the Star Tribune, and they get into many specific stories which evidence uh, all the things that they start off with there in the introduction of the the shoddy investigation, the the lack of initiative, the uh, basically brushing off and and proverbial patting on the head of victims, uh, assuring them that something's going to be done and then not doing it, and it's pretty disturbing. You get into the details of of these different cases, and the impulse. You know, my, I'll just speak for myself. When I first saw the headline, and I first started reading it. My sense of expectation, you know, knowing the Star Tribune and knowing the political perspective that they come from, what I expected to discover, what I expected to find was a an unreasonable suggestion that we ought to somehow magically be able to find, prosecute, and convict everybody who engages in sexual assault, regardless of the evidence, regardless of the the veracity of the claims that are being made against the suspect or the alleged assailant and what have you. But that's not what this article presents. What this article presents is cases where the very clear evidence that was presented by the uh, victims is not followed up on, where witnesses who are identified and who whose identities are known are not pursued, not interviewed, Evidence is not secured. 
You know, work just simply is not done. Cases aren't assigned to investigators, and the, these cases fall through the cracks. And, you know, one of the reasons that's cited by different sources in this article from the law enforcement agencies in question, basically their excuse is, look, we don't have the resources. You know, we don't have the, the personnel. We don't have the funding, of course, right? It's always about money, right? We don't have what we need in order to prosecute rape, which just strikes me as a blatant, bold-faced lie. A blatant, bold-faced lie. Because I'll tell you what, you know what you do have resources for? You got resources to pull a guy over for not wearing a seatbelt. You got resources to have a guy posted for for an eight-hour stretch at a, at a uh, speed trap to catch somebody going five miles over the limit. You got resources for all sorts of things which bring in revenue for your department. You got resources to pursue, you know, nonviolent drug offenses and to and to pursue civil asset forfeiture, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that the police department's more than happy to dedicate themselves to. You know, they'll sit and watch a guy, sit and stake a guy out in the hood for selling marijuana, right? But we're not going to pursue a violent criminal rapist. I just saw, I think it was a headline on Reddit. I'll see if I can find the story again. But it said that Colorado has had more closed cases since marijuana became legalized than ever before in the state's history. Not a coincidence. No, not at all. Not a coincidence. Because we've got our proverbial heads up our butts with with the current state of criminal justice, with our focus on non-victim crimes. At the expense of crimes where there is a victim. Look, and you know, one of the, my friends on Facebook, political personality, his comment on this was, how is rape, how is murder and rape not your first, your top priorities as a law enforcement agency? Like, what are you doing at the expense of investigating rape? And there is no good answer to that question. There's precisely no acceptable answer to that question. There's nothing you should be doing at the expense of investigating actual crime that has a real tangible victim who requires justice. The problem is, is that our justice system isn't really about justice. That's not the primary driving motivation of the system as it stands. And, you know, the prescription for how to get us from here to where it ought to be that's where I and the Star Tribune likely are going to end up differing. But uh, nevertheless, it is an issue that needs to be looked at. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We've been talking about this expose over the weekend. Front page of the Star Tribune, wherein they go down, they did a review, a lengthy review of a thousand different sexual assault cases and came up with an assessment that does not look good. They they brought in experts, by the way, from around the country, investigators from other parts of the nation, other jurisdictions to evaluate the quality of these investigations and they were appalled like quote after quote after quote is you can almost see these guest investigators face palming and in some cases literally saying how is this possible that there's this level of well call it what you will incompetence 
negligence, willful disregard, negligence of duty, dereliction of duty, I guess is the phrase you would use. It's quite stunning. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. We go to Jamar. Welcome to the program. What's up, what are you? Good. Say, you and I are going to agree tonight, so this not, may not be an interesting call. <laughs> but what's, what, what, you know, what's crazy, though, is uh, a lot of departments, especially Minneapolis, have cut funding for those particular uh, uh, units that they have investigating right. those crimes. Right. While they'll tell you that they beat them up, I know for, for a fact that Minneapolis has cut their, and here's the other thing, the reason that I think a lot of these investigations are half-assed is because a lot of the cops are, those are demotion. When you go to the rapes and the, the, uh, the other units, mm-hmm. those are demotional type right. of units that you are, uh, put in. So cops don't give their best efforts in those units. Yeah, um, I, I, it, that's news to me, but it doesn't surprise me at all because, and I hate to be cynical, but that's, those aren't the profit centers for the departments. Right. That's just that's, if it, that's just a from a budgetary perspective, that's just a black hole. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. And that's it's sad. And when I learned that, especially about Minneapolis and some of the other surrounding, um, now St. Louis Park does a good job of that. But when you get to smaller departments, then that's going to tell you that they don't have the manpower. So right. they, then, then there's the to, reason to investigate they, rape. They can cut those units. But it's sad, and the the good thing about it is people like you and I will talk about it, but mm-hmm. sometimes talk isn't enough when you've got serious victims on a consistent basis that are uh, uh, confl- confronted with these problems and really don't get any uh, assistance or have the assailants arrested or even trialed. So what's your call to action? Let's castrate them. No, I... I, I, I wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, no, seriously. That's, I can't stand pedophiles and sure. rapists, I think, that seriously. But I think one thing we got to do is make sure that the mayors, like Mayor Fry, uh-huh. we've got to we've got to make sure that he is putting the money, especially where he's getting money from the feds or not, putting the money in these types of units, and we're putting the right, right. officers in there. Because, again, uh, Walter, the officers that are in there, most of them don't want to be there. So we've got to find officers that care about these crimes happening to women and men, but more, of course, women. So I don't know where you begin. we got big departments, I don't know where you begin. Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you talk about officers not wanting to take the demotion or wanting to go where they're not going to be as recognized. You know, that if they're just following incentive, the incentive that's been presented to them, right? Like, I, I don't look at the... now. Granted, if you look at the Star Tribune article, you get into the details. There are certainly examples of particular investigators or particular departments that clearly dropped the ball and and weren't doing their job. But aside from that, just speaking generally about you know the the hypothetical man in the street police officer, I don't blame them for being self interested in pursuing the the incentives that they've been presented with. I blame the system for creating those incentives. And for for prioritizing things like drug crimes and traffic enforcement and, you know, raising revenue off speeding tickets and what have you, for making those the priority because that's where they get their budgetary funding from. And so you hit the nail on the head. Now, I'll say this and be quiet. You, you've been hitting the nail on the head. The problem is they're not getting revenues from those smaller units. There is no money coming from there. But when you like to say, when they're setting up traps and there's plenty of money in traps and in those drug units, 
That's where the revenues is coming from. When you look at Minneapolis having a $200 million annual budget, and you're telling me that uh, some of that money can't be used to form a special uh, victims unit that have officers that are doing their job diligently, it's ridiculous. But Minneapolis will tell you that it's not true. I I hate to say it, but here's another aspect of this that is implied in what we've been saying, but hasn't been said explicitly. It's easy to get convictions when you're going after somebody for, you know, possession of a drug or selling of a drug or whatever the case. Like, that's easy police work. Whereas investigating sexual assault, and that's another theme that is is interlaced throughout this Star Tribune expose, is that it's actually hard to investigate a claim of sexual assault. Like, you actually have to, you know, wear out your shoe leather and talk to people and build a case. And that takes effort, and it's difficult. And so, you know, perhaps part of this is, well, I don't want to have to work really hard to maybe not get a conviction and not be able to put a feather in my cat for my career. And if, if, that's, if that's part of what's going on here, the only word for that is reprehensible. Walter, I hate when I can't argue with you. <laughs> it happens every once in a while. I can't argue with you. Yeah. All right. No, you're absolutely right, man. I appreciate you. All right. I appreciate you, and uh, thanks right. for calling in. You can listen to Jamar on Black Republican, Black Democrat airs on Saturdays over this very air, 6 p.m. Check him out. You know, it's he, he is much more argumentative on his own show. Every once in a while, he'll call in here and we'll argue, but you know, it seems to be about 50-50 that we're on the same page. Isn't Jamar going to be with us later this week? Oh, yeah, that's right. They're supposed to be. He's supposed to be in here tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Richard Painter is going to be in. Yeah, Jamar, I I did forget about that. It's on my calendar, but, you know, I had a really bad day today. (laughs) Mr. Dumpster Fire himself. (laughs) Yes, the dumpster fire is going to be in the house tomorrow night. That's going to be entertaining. (laughs) All right. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. The number to join us in our final segment of the evening. We've been talking about this expose over in the Star Tribune about cases of sexual assault. They went through a thousand different such cases and discovered a systemic inadequacy, to say the least, in terms of how these cases are handled. It seems as though rape just isn't a high priority of law enforcement in the state of Minnesota. Which is weird because you would think that you know if if our if 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 our law enforcement is going to do anything at all, murder and rape would be right up there at the top. That everything else would be subordinate to that. You know if if I I, I would rather see. I, I'm telling you, I wouldn't lose a wink of sleep if we if we took as many cars off the street, squad cars, looking for speeders and people buckled up as necessary in order to investigate all the rapes. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that trade-off. I imagine most moral human beings are as well. Let's talk to Sue in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, the one, I wonder if one of the problems might be that 
no, uh, you, those detectives come from the uniformed ranks. And our St. Paul police chief just asked for something. I think it was 50 new cops. But, you know, Melvin Carter, he doesn't want cops, uh, more cops. And all these neighborhood groups went down on record to say, no, no, they don't want more <laughs> cops either. They want them to put lots of money in their neighborhoods and give all these foundations money. They don't want any, they want social workers and stuff, not yeah. cops. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fair point. I appreciate the call, Sue. Although, I believe, and perhaps it's naive, perhaps it's a naive belief, but I think there's a possibility, not with the leadership, you know, you're not going to get like the intellectual leaders, the, the Nikema Levy pounds of the world, you know, one of the leading forces of Black Lives Matter here in Minnesota. You're not using gonna, the term intellectual loosely. Yes. very, very <laughs> I'm, Relative to their movement, the intellectual side of the spectrum, uh, you're not going to get them to buy into what it is that I'm about to suggest here. But I think when you look at the rank and file, the man on the street, you know, the person who's sincerely interested in seeing life in their neighborhood and their community improve, there is a potential for, for dialogue and real progress towards criminal justice reform. Where I don't, I don't think the average person in a St. Paul neighborhood has a problem with the police investigating rape. That's not the beef that people have with the cops. The beef that people have with the cops is the the selective enforcement of laws that are directed at activities for which there is no victim, you know, the drug war, right? And the the selecting the perceived discriminatory enforcement of traffic laws and such directed at minorities. That's what they're upset about. And not entirely without cause. And so if you were to to try to forge coalition with folks at the grassroots level, even in the urban core, and say, look, here's our objective. We want less enforcement of drug laws, or better yet, less drug laws, and we want less of a focus on making sure that everybody's buckled up, and we want more focus on actual crimes against human beings that cause harm, such as murder, assault, and rape. Let's talk to you, Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I agree with what you're saying, but I think the fundamental problem is with the policing is the same fundamental problem that we have with the school system. They put out all these great facades about what they're doing, like school, they do big football programs, but they don't spend money on teaching the people who need to read, learn how to read, to teach them how to read. And then when they say we don't have money to teach to get these people in, but they spent all this money on this brand new fancy school that right. wasn't really necessary. Right. Yeah. It, it, I think that's what it is. They, they do things that make them seem like they're doing something, but they're not really. You know. This probably there's probably a, a no small element of that taking place. You know where it's it. I mean, I don't know how much. How conscientiously you could you could make the decision of well let's l- investigate less rape so that we get more money <laughs> from uh... I, I I agree I don't think it's conscious but what they're trying to do when they when they go out and they enforce these seatbelt stuff they're not trying to it's not that they're just trying to enforce seatbelt laws right? right they're trying to make themselves visible right? I got you that's, yeah that's sure right yeah. make them look like look at we're doing something, something. yeah right. Yeah. Okay, so, but when you're investigating rapes, how many people do you actually run into, and how many people actually see you doing that? Right. You know, I, think that's, I think that's where 
you know, that's where it comes from. Yeah, I, I appreciate the call, Barry. I appreciate the thought. And listen, I think that it's true. You know, if, if the cops were laser-focused on crimes against persons, crimes like murder, assault, and rape, theft, if they were laser-focused on that and they weren't focused on the drug war and they weren't as focused on you know enforcing traffic laws for the sake of raising revenue rather than the sake of actually protecting people then i think the the overall perception you know so one of the again referring to black lives matter and similar critical movements one of the criticisms that's directed at police is you know this sense that they're not for you they're not for the community that they're they're actually an antagonistic force if police were laser focused on the investigation and case building and prosecution of actual crimes against persons, you would see a revitalization. That is how you improve the relationship with the community. That's how you do it by training people over time that when you see a police officer, he's doing something important in service of justice because I, I hate to, and look, this is, I'm not trying to attack cops. I'm not trying to attack law enforcement. This isn't their fault. This isn't the fault of the officer. The officer is is given a rule book. They're given a set of policies that the laws are what they are, and they're tasked with enforcing those laws. This is a criticism directed at the legislature, directed at the decision makers and the policy makers. Right now, under the status quo, you have a scenario where the when, when all things are considered, the result is for certain segments of the population in certain communities, when they see a cop, they don't think, oh, I'm so glad that person's here. I'm so glad that officer's in the neighborhood. I'm so glad I'm being protected right now. That's not what they think. They see a cop and they think, uh-oh, I better. They have, they have the exact same reaction that you would have to seeing a shady character walking down a dark alley they cross the street or they turn around they try to avoid the person with protect and serve scribbled on the side of their vehicle that should tell you something shouldn't it when the when the reaction from the general population is oh man i'm i might be in trouble now because there's a police officer here if if they were focused on the crimes that actually uh, that are actual crimes where there's actually a victim involved assault murder rape theft things of that nature then their reputation would be such that people would actually feel protected when they saw a cop on the street and that would be good for everybody it would be good for them and it would be good for all of us closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm glenn beck is next twin cities news talk.com